Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. So uh, Jeremiah chapter 8, Jeremiah chapter 8, we're actually in part two of this uh, new series we started called The Person God Uses, Jeremiah chapter 8. While you're turning there, let me tell you a story about a Baptist minister named Bob Pierce. Bob Pierce worked for a religious nonprofit called Youth for Christ. Some of you are familiar with that organization. Its mission is to evangelize uh, people around the, the globe. And in the course of his ministry in Asia, thousands of people made commitments to Jesus Christ in the course of that ministry. But while he was there, he also saw widespread hunger and he felt intense compassion for those people. So he actually began to raise money to help children and, and he showed their faces to the world and he begged Christians to adopt. Uh, one of these children. And in 1950, he actually incorporated this personal crusade into an organization called World Vision. Then in 1970, Pierce founded Samaritan's Purse, which over the years has met the needs of people who are victims of war and poverty and, and natural disasters and disease and famine, all with the purpose of sharing Christ's love. You probably know them best for Operation Christmas Child and the, and the boxes that we gather and send every year. Written in the flyleaf of Bob Pierce's Bible were these words, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. Now two weeks ago in part one, we explored the, the calling that God placed on Jeremiah's life. The call to be a prophet to God's people. Jeremiah, like Bob Pierce, served with a broken heart. You see, it's no accident that uh, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And keep that in the back of your mind as we read this text this morning. Jeremiah chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 4. But the Lord speaking to Jeremiah here in verse 4 says, You are to say to them, this is what the Lord says. Do people fall and not get up again? If they turn away, do they not return? Why have these people turned away? Why is Jerusalem always turning away? They take hold of deceit. They refuse to return. I have paid careful attention. They do not speak what is right. No one regrets his evil, asking, what have I done? Everyone has stayed his course like a horse rushing into battle. Even storks in the sky know their seasons. Turtle doves, swallows, and cranes are aware of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. How can you claim we are wise? The law of the Lord is with us. In fact, the lying pen of scribes has produced falsehood. The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and snared. They have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they really have? Therefore I will give their wives to other men, their fields to new occupants. For from the least to the greatest, everyone is making profit dishonestly. 
From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated the brokenness of my dear people superficially, claiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they acted so detestably? They weren't at all ashamed. They can no longer feel humiliation. Therefore, they will fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they will collapse, says the Lord. I will gather them and bring them to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, and even the leaf will wither. Whatever I have given them will be lost to them. Now look uh, at verse 18. Look at what Jeremiah says there in verse 18. He says, my joy has flown away. Grief has settled on me. My heart is sick. Then look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Jeremiah continuing there, he says, if my head were a flowing spring, my eyes a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night over the slain of my dear people. Now, there's a good reason that Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Now, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the people were in open rebellion against God. And we know that in 586 BC, Jerusalem would be destroyed. In fact, it was the sorrow over the destruction of Jerusalem that actually would prompt the writing of the book of Lamentations, a book that most scholars believe was actually written by Jeremiah. Here in chapter 8, though, we find that Jeremiah specifically mourned for his people because they pursued idols instead of God. And this had alienated from the, them from the Lord, had corrupted their life together as a society. Now, remember from, from a couple of weeks ago, we established the fact that as a prophet, Jeremiah was basically acting as a covenant enforcement mediator. Now, as part of God's covenant with his people, he'd given them the law. Now, there's a couple of different aspects to the Old Testament law. There was a vertical aspect to the law. Much of that law was ceremonial, dealing with how they worshiped God. There was also a horizontal aspect to the law. Much of it was judicial, instructing them on how to deal both with one another and with other nations. But now the people of Judah had violated their covenant. Their sin had affected both their relationship with God and with one another, which really brings us to the, to the heart, the theological heart of this passage. Really the big idea here in chapter 8 is this, that choosing a substitute for God disrupts our vertical relationship with God and distorts our horizontal relationships with one another. All right, let me say that again. Choosing a substitute for God, in other words, making anything more important to you than God not only disrupts your vertical relationship with him, but it distorts your horizontal relationships with one another. Church, that's something that we ought to be broken over. Jeremiah's heart was broken over the plight and the condition of his people. His heart ached. And this was amplified by the fact that he was actually sent to deliver a message that was hard. It was an unpopular message, a message that required people to repent, to, to change, to alter their lives. And both in the then and there and the here and now, that's not a message that people respond well to because it requires behavioral change. 
And so the typical response to that type of message is, who are you to tell me what to do? Well, Jeremiah obediently proclaimed this message, but he did it with a tear in his eye because of the plight of the people. In fact, his mourning, his grief over his people really foreshadowed the sorrow that Jesus would show. In a similar manner, Jesus wept over the people's sin. Uh, his heart broke. It says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, that because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. So like Jeremiah, the ministry of Christ was a tearful ministry. Uh, and there's a summary of that ministry from the writer of Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, where he describes Jesus' ministry this way. He says, During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus' ministry broke his heart. It cost him his life. So here's the big question I want to pose to you this morning, church. What breaks your heart? What about you? What breaks your heart this morning? Now, before you answer that question, let me tell you what broke Jeremiah's heart and what broke Jesus' heart and really what ought to you know, break all of our hearts. Yes, Jeremiah was broken because the people of Judah had chosen a substitute for God. And yes, it had disrupted their fellowship with him, distorted their relations with one another. But there's actually five facets to this brokenness, you know, five different things from this passage that really should break our hearts when we think about it. Number one is this. We should be broken by people who are unrepentant, by people who are unrepentant. Look at verse 5. God told Jeremiah to say, why have these people turned away? Why is Jerusalem always turning away? They take hold of deceit. They refuse to return. So the people in Jeremiah's day, obviously they had turned away from God and they had refused to repent. Here's the thing, they had no desire to return to God. Though they had every opportunity to turn back to God, in fact, uh, those of you who were here last week, you'll recall from Co uh, Cody's message, he uh, pointed out there as demonstrated in the book of Jonah, how God choosing to send prophets to warn his people, that was actually an act of grace. Time after time, God had granted them the opportunity to come back to him. Instead, the people just deliberately charged forward ahead in their, in their sinful practices. You know, just like that war horse charging into battle that we read about in the scripture just a minute ago. They should have known better. Jeremiah reminded them, hey, you know, when people fall down, they're supposed to get back up again. You know, if somebody takes a wrong turn, uh, they're supposed to turn around, get back on the right road. Even birds know when it's time to migrate. Well, people should be just as obedient to divine instruction, returning to God when they sin. Now, I think one of the, the big problems with modern Christianity is that we, while we practice confession of sin, we don't always practice repentance 
from sin. Now we hold fast to that promise in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But then we fail to heed uh, Jesus' words in uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 32, where He said, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, we, we tend to treat repentance like it's a, it's a one-time act at conversion. And that from that point forward, the only thing that's really necessary from us is confession. Well, here's the thing. Jesus doesn't want us to just acknowledge our sin. He wants us to actually turn from. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about here. When my kids were little, uh, you know, when it was bath time, I'd, I'd put them in the bathtub and, you know, if I had to leave the, uh, the room, I'd give them some vague warning like, now don't let me catch you splashing water on the floor. What's wrong with that statement? I was not conditioning them to feel sorry for their actions, but to feel sorry for getting caught. Well, confession without repentance, it's kind of like little kids getting caught in misbehavior saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, only to have them repeat the same mistake again and again. And we do the same thing with God, don't we? And when I say we, I mean we, I mean all of us. I mean, every single message that I preach is just as much for me as it is for anybody else. But how often do we find ourselves saying to God, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, only to repeat the same sin over and over and over again. You know, maybe it's that we want to experience the love of God without actually experiencing the holiness of God. You know, we've lost the message of repentance. But when you think about it, repentance is a gift of grace. I mean, a repentant person is willing to leave his destructive paths you know, just like a, a slave is willing to leave the galley or a prisoner leaves the dungeon or a thief abandons his wares or a beggar his rags. Repentance sets us free. So, our hearts ought to be broken by people who are unrepentant. Really, if we're going to be the type of people that God uses, our hearts should be broken by people's unrepentance. Here's the second thing. We should be broken by people who reject God's Word. Now, the, the, the roots of Judah's sin were found really in two things, the failure to repent, but also the rejection of God's Word. In verse 9, Jeremiah wrote that God says, they have rejected the Word of the Lord. You see, the people, they possessed the Word, but they didn't really practice the Word. I think it's interesting that while the Bible is still the best-selling book of all time, that popularity doesn't seem to be keeping society from, from crumbling morally and spiritually. Now, why is that? I think it's because there's, there's little connection between what people say they believe and the way they actually act. I don't know how many times during my dad's uh, revival ministry, um, hearing him start revival messages with the words, what you do is what you really believe and everything else is just religious talk. Could the problem lie in the fact that while 
you know, we may read God's word. While we might even believe God's word, we don't actually practice God's word. In the words of James, the half-brother of Jesus from James chapter 1, he says, we're to be doers of the word and not just hearers only, you know, deceiving ourselves. There was a study done by LifeWay Research back in 2017 that uh, determined that only half of the people who read the Bible, 52%, say that it's a good source for morals. 65% of those people who read the Bible, two-thirds, don't consider it to be life-changing to them. Two-thirds of people who read the Bible don't let it affect the way they live. In other words, just because people are reading the Bible doesn't mean that they're living it. Now think back to Jesus' day, how it must have broken his heart when the scribes and Pharisees, the, the very students of the Word of God, didn't really practice the Word of God. Yeah, they like to argue and debate theology and interpretation of scriptures. They didn't really follow its precepts, though. They devoted more energy to, to the different interpretations of the law than the, the actual spirit and the purpose behind it. They had knowledge of the law, but they didn't really apply it. Well, in that same passage in James chapter 1, James reminds us to humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, in this particular context, that word receive, it means to be open to, to approve, to accept, uh, in essence, to welcome. So to accept God's word, we first must make his word welcome into our lives. We must give it our full attention, must be teachable, yielded, humble, and willing to be changed. And when we begin to put God's word into practice, it will change our hearts. We'll find ourselves looking at people the way Jesus looked at people. We'll be hurt over the the injustices committed against people. We'll be sensitive to to people's hurts, to, to people who feel outcast and lonely and abused and neglected. I mean, we will cry for the lost and dying without him. You know, we'll begin to feel a real sense of urgency about reaching the world. All right, so, so to be the type of people that God chooses to use, number one, we need to be broken by people who are unrepentant. Number two, by people who reject God's word. And then here's the third one. We need to be broken by people whose time is running out. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, uh, Jeremiah wrote eloquently, harvest has passed, summer has ended, but we have not been saved. Now in Judah, the harvest time and the summer time, that were the two different, two completely different seasons. The harvest was a time for gathering grain. Summer was a time for gathering fruit. Now, if one of those harvests was a failure, the other was usually a success. But if both were unsuccessful, then tragedy was staring them in the face. Now, this particular pro- uh, proverb that he quotes here in verse 20, it really speaks of the tragedy of wasted opportunity. You know, today we might, we might say it something like, well, hey, <laughs> time's up. 
you know, party's over, dude. There just comes a time when it's too late. You know, uh, we moved here from a region of Texas that is the largest cotton producer in the United States. Now, Texas is the number one cotton producing state in the U.S., but six out of the seven top cotton producing counties in Texas are within an 80-mile radius of our former home. Well, because that particular area is, is often prone to drought, it can really affect the health of the harvest and the, the timing of the harvest. You know, if the rain doesn't come at the right time, that can mess up the timing of the harvest. Fall rains especially can delay the harvest time. Um, that means it's really hard to get the crops in on time. Normally they're going to harvest probably in the month of October, <clears throat> maybe in, in November, but if it's delayed too long, cold weather can move in and can damage the crops or keep the crops from growing to full maturity. A few years back, there was a West Texas cotton farmer named Don Duff. Don tore a ligament in his knee right before harvest time. I mean, this guy could not walk, you know, much less drive a cotton harvester. Well, to save his crop, eight other cotton farmers from the area came together to harvest Don's crop for him. But then that meant that each one of them was racing to get their own crop in on time to get their own harvesting done. There's a genuine sense of urgency to get her done. Well, there's a similar urgency that needs to be felt for the harvest of souls. Of the billions of people in the world, it's estimated that over 30 million people will die each year without Jesus Christ. And of the 332 million people in the United States, it's estimated that 41% of the people don't go to any kind of church at all for any occasion. I mean, not Easter, not Christmas, not weddings, not funerals. You know, this, this whole, uh, if you build it, they will come mentality. That doesn't work. We can't wait for them to come to us. We got to go get them, church. Because if they're to die, they're going to go to eternal punishment without knowing the saving love of Jesus Christ. Jesus' heart broke over the harvest when he said the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. That's Matthew 9, 37 and 38. Jesus saw the people. He, in a sense, he saw the clock. He saw the need and his heart broke because time was running out. Back in the 20th century, it's a very well-known preacher, uh, sought-after revival um, preacher and, and, and speaker. His name was Vance Havner. Vance Havner was actually known to say that the tragedy of our time is that the situation is desperate, but the saints are not. Folks, we're living in desperate times. And desperate times demand action. We live in a, in a lost and broken world that is desperate for the good news of Jesus Christ. Three weeks before John F. Kennedy was assassinated, he said this. He said, almost all presidents leave office feeling that their work is unfinished. I have a lot to do and so little time to do it. 
He didn't realize how prophetic his words really were. Well, as followers of Jesus Christ, folks, we got a lot of work to do and not a whole lot of time to accomplish it. So we've got to be all in. We've got to be sold out because the times demand urgent action. Remember, the gospel is only good news if it arrives in time. All right, so, so far here in Jeremiah chapter 8, we've seen that our hearts should be broken by, one, people who are unrepentant, two, by people who reject the Word of God, by three, people whose time is running out. But here's a fourth one I want you to add to that list. Our hearts should be broken by people who are self-destructing. Broken by people who are self-destructing. Look at verse 21. Jeremiah wrote, I am broken by the brokenness of my dear people. I mourn. Horror has taken hold of me. Jeremiah mourned over the sins of the people. Now, these people were like his children. And his children were injured. They're, they're barely clinging to life. Now, that, that Hebrew word that he uses there for I mourn, it's the Hebrew word uh, kadar. It, it literally means that I am, I am dark or, or, or black. I mean, in this context, what it's really describing is the color of, of mourning clothes, mourning attire. And when Jeremiah says that he's broken, he uses the word shabar, meaning, meaning hurt or crushed or, or destroyed. I mean, he's describing a, a wrenching fit, literally being convulsed with agony. Jeremiah was like a parent watching a wayward child destroy his life through wrong choices. Now, for those of you who are parents, you know that when your kids hurt, you hurt, right? You lose sleep when they're in trouble. Now, re you rejoice when they make wise decisions, right? But you grieve when you realize that, yes, because they're created with free will, sometimes they are going to make choices that bring consequences that they might end up having to learn some of life's lessons the hard way. And for those of us whose kids are adults, you know, there's that uneasy feeling that knowing that, yes, they're adults, they're going to make their own choices, sometimes they're going to choose poorly. But you understand that, yes, because they are adults, they need to be allowed to, to choose for themselves, even if those choices are the wrong ones. And it's heart-wrenching because you know that only God <laughs> is the one who has the power to correct them now. Well, Jeremiah saw the people of Judah as his own children. And he saw them venturing down this slippery slope of self-destruction. Well, guess what? That same sense of desperation, that same agony he felt and that, that just foreshadowed the same kind of pain that, that Jesus felt that he took upon himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because Jesus also saw the world, I mean, the people that he himself had created as his own children. And when the shock and the burden of the sins of the people took hold of him, the Bible says in Luke uh, chapter 22 that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. 
Jesus' anguish was so great that the accounts in, in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 say that he cried out, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The pain, the, the hurt, the emotions ran so deep. His heart was broken because the people he loved were running headlong into destruction. Which really, I mean, it begs the question, church, how often does your heart break for lost friends and, and, and lost family members? I mean, when was the last time your, your concern for a lost soul was so great that it brought you to tears? I mean, when's the last time that you thought of a person spending eternity in utter anguish and despair separated from God? When was the last time that broke your heart? Church, our hearts ought to be broken by, number one, people who are unrepentant. Two, people who reject God's word. Number three, people whose time is running out. Fourth, people who are self-destructing. But here's a fifth and final thing that ought to break our hearts, church. People who refuse the cure. Look at verse 22. Jeremiah asks, is there no balm in Gilead? Now, that particular saying was actually a metaphor. And his hearers would have easily understood that particular turn of phrase. Jeremiah was looking to the east toward this restful town called Gilead. It was located in a, in a mountainous region, the east of the Jordan River and north of the plains of Moab, which is actually in, in what's now modern day Jordan. This particular community was famous for its healing ointment made from the resin of a, of a particular tree. And so Gilead actually served as a symbol of hope. It was a city of cure. It was a place of remedy. And so by asking, is there no balm in Gilead? Jeremiah was saying that, hey, you know, a remedy actually exists for the people's wound. Repentance. But they hadn't used it. Yes, there was a physician that could help them overcome their spiritual sickness. The very prophet who had brought them God's word. But they refused to consult him. Have you ever known people who were, who were sick but refused to go to the doctor? You know, or maybe a married couple whose marriage is on the rocks but they refuse to go see a marriage counselor. Or an employee whose performance on the job could be so much better if he would just humble himself and, and sit down with his supervisor. Do you know any people who are lost people, trapped in their sin, who know that they need to turn to Jesus, but simply refuse to accept his hand of rescue? It was August of 2005, 17 years ago, that the world watched as Hurricane Katrina dumped massive amounts of rain on New Orleans. As most of you recall, the uh, city's levee system failed. Immense floodwaters inundated much of the city. One of the five deadliest hurricanes in the history of the U.S. In fact, I, you know, I don't know if New Orleans will ever fully 
recover from what happened in August of 2005. But imagine, just imagine for a moment that you have been trapped in that flood. All right, the National Guard has already come through your neighborhood warning residents to evacuate, but in your stubborn foolishness, you refuse to leave. Well, the floodwaters have risen and you find yourself on the roof of your house, clinging to some hope of rescue. Now, minutes later, a guy in a rowboat comes by. He paddles by, he calls you, hey, climb down into the boat, friend, I'll take you to safety. Ah, no thanks, he yelled back, I'm waiting for God to rescue me. <laughs> so the guy rose on looking for somebody else to, to help. Later, you actually spot a helicopter flying overhead. And the pilot's voice comes on a megaphone and says, we're lowering you a ladder, grab it. We'll pull you up and fly out of safety. Hey, you know, I really appreciate the gesture, fellas, but I I'm waiting for God to save me. And so the pilot, he shrugs in amazement. But he honors your request, and he moves on. Time passes, night falls, the rain continues, the floodwaters keep rising. You're swept away and you finally drown. And the next thing you know, you're standing before the throne of God, and you just can't help but ask, God, why didn't you save me from the flood? And God curtly replies, who do you think sent the rowboat and the helicopter? How many people know that the Lord stands ready to rescue, to forgive, to save, but then they just refuse his hand of rescue? Jesus sees people from every walk of life heading toward the same path, and that path of sin does not have a happy ending. I mean, despite the, the well-announced warnings of hell ahead, people keep treading water in the swirling current of their sins, unrepentant, with the clock ticking. And yes, as bizarre and as inexplicable as it seems, some perishing people just resist rescue. Not everyone wants to be rescued from the peril. Not everyone wants to abandon the course that they're on. Not everyone wants to come to Jesus. I mean, they know that the offer's there, but they simply refuse to live life on his terms. And so they reject rescue. Folks, that ought to break a Christian's heart. So Jeremiah gives us five things here in this passage. Five things that we ought to be broken about. It should grieve our hearts when we see people who are unrepentant. When we see people who reject God's word. When we see people whose time is running out. People who are self-destructing. People who refuse the cure. That ought to break us. But here's the thing. I mean, here's, here's the big point about that kind of grief. Church, God uses people with broken hearts. He puts our compassion into action. 
So the big question before us this morning, church, is will you let your heart be broken by the things that break God's heart? Remember the old song that says that you're the only Bible that some people will ever read. You're the only Jesus that some people will ever see. May we all have a heart like Bob Pierce who wrote on the inside of his Bible, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, and you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.